And for those joining us by other means, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message, simply entitled, One Thing I Know. One Thing I Know. This is one of those one thing I know passages in our scripture. Probably not the one that most think about right away. There's another one thing I know passage. We're not going to spend time there. We're going to be in John chapter number 9. So we invite you to join us in your Bible in John chapter number 9. At the outset here, let me say I have a challenge in front of me. Those who know my preaching and and how that usually goes. Uh, By the way, for those that were here last week, I made it through the introduction. (laughs) Hallelujah. So we'll have to come back for part two and part three of the rest of that resurrection series. Amen. Uh, where we get to fill in the rest of your blanks. I'm going to do better this morning, with the Lord's help. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 9. There's 41 verses, I think. Uh, Yeah, 41 verses here in John chapter 9. We're going to do them all, because I want you to see the whole picture. And so I'm going to go ahead for sake of time and dive right in here. This is a beautiful story. And we're given so much detail by John about this unnamed blind man And what happened when Jesus healed him? Because John is building part of the dialogue and and part of the presentation about our Savior to help us understand why the religious leaders of his day wanted him put to death. But we know God had a greater plan in that through his death, we received salvation for those who believe on the Lord. And so I draw your attention for sake of time to verse 25. Where also I draw my title. This blind man. Well, he's not blind anymore. If I say that this morning, just know after Jesus heals him, he's not blind anymore. Amen. But he, this healed man, by this time in in the story, answered. And who's he answering? He's answering the religious leaders. He's answering the Pharisees. He answered and said, because they had asked him about Jesus and different questions and actually called Jesus a sinner. This man had a wise reply. He said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Lord, I pray that you'll bless this time together in your word. Help us to see the truth that's here in ways that only the Holy Spirit can give illumination. This is beyond me, Lord. I'm asking you to do a supernatural work in our hearts and lives. I want to thank you, Lord. I asked you early this morning to strengthen my voice, and I pray that you'll continue to do that through the preaching of your word. And and Lord, you've answered that so far, and I just pray that you'll help me to be able to herald forth what you'd have for us this morning to feed those that are here that are hungry, that are coming to see you, Lord. They're not coming for me. They're, They're not coming for anyone but you. Lord, I pray that they would not be disappointed as they encounter your word, that they would leave here filled, filled, having meditated and thought about the truth that's in this wonderful passage. I pray you'll help my mind to stay clear and to stay on target to do what only you want this morning. And I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Recently, our family took a trip back to Georgia to go see some family and. You know, it's harder and harder to do this anymore, but sometimes you can come across just a good family film, and you can go and see a good family film. 
Uh, and so we did with my mom and with my stepdad. That's something that before uh, I really started living for the Lord, my mom and I used to do that just, just to spend time together as family. That's what it means to me more than anything rather than necessarily what we're watching. But uh, we, we went as a family together and we saw the new Mary Poppins. Okay, I got to tell you, I, I, was, I was pleased, you know, I really was. Now, I'm not going to get into a theological debate here about movie theaters and, and Mary Poppins and all of that stuff and, and all the things that are nuances in there. Okay, we're discerning people, right? Please say yes. Okay, so just good, clean fun. Anymore, it's hard to do. I mean, you can't go hardly anywhere without finding some kind of, yeah, it's just not good. But I'll tell you, one thing that they did, you remember the, old, the, the, the first Mary Poppins, and uh, the, the character was the chimney sweep. Well, this one, they did a little bit of a, a change to that, and uh, it, was a, it was a younger man that was playing. And some of the older characters, they came in too throughout the movie, and that was kind of neat to see. Uh, I, I think they did a, a, ver, a very good job, you know, on the movie and the graphics and everything. But one thing that they did in that movie, and this is where I'm going with this, is instead of having a chimney sweep, guess what? They had the lamp lighters the lamp lighters. And we've lost this. We don't understand what the lamp lighters had to go through. But as the movie opens, you know, you've got this uh, fella, he's riding his bicycle around with his ladders and, and he's setting the, the ladders up and he's lighting all the lamps through the city. You know, now we just drive down the road and it's like, bing. Ooh. <laughs> now, let me tell you this. When I was a kid, that meant if you weren't home by then, Oh boy, you better have a real good reason, you know what I mean? And if the lights went off, the street lights came on, and then the bell started ringing, we had a big bell on our back porch, and they'd go out and they'd ring that thing. If we were not within earshot of that bell, I'm alive. <laughs> I lived. It was good for me, it was good for me. But the lamplighters, okay, there's a story that's told about Robert Louis Stevenson. You know, he was a writer and uh, wrote, wrote stories and things. And Robert Louis Stevenson, this story is recounted about him as a young boy. He was just really infatuated with the lamplighters. And uh, I don't want to tell you the wrong thing here that he said. But on one evening in Edinburgh, Scotland, a young Robert stood watching with childish fascination. His parents heard him exclaim. Now, parents, you know how your kids just kind of roll off with something sometimes and you're like, whoa, where'd that come from? Here was what they heard. Look, look, there's a man out there punching holes in the darkness. <laughs> hey, that really helps us understand where we're going today in our passage. Now let's get up to speed a little bit. If uh, Hopefully you got your handouts. I didn't actually point them out to you, Pastor Larson. Do we get those from the office? Okay, you've got those. I wrote this down for you to meditate on because this is my takeaway from this whole episode. My takeaway, right here underneath the title and the reference, you'll see it at the top. As I studied this, I could not get away from the fact that Jesus both saved this blind man through his personal faith, this blind man's personal faith. After he was healed, he believed on Jesus because Jesus invited him to, and he saved this man. While simultaneously, at the same time, You've got to see this, condemning these self-righteous Pharisees through their own personal unbelief. Do you see the contrast? Faith on the one hand, unbelief on the other. One is blessed with life, the other is condemned to death. And that's about as clear as I can make it. 
it shows me that it truly, eternally matters what somebody does with this man, Jesus. What have you done with him? What about those in your sphere of influence? Can you discern what they've done with him? Two groups of people, two types of people we see in this passage. Well, there's more, okay? There's the disciples, too. And uh, lest you think you're skirting out of here unscathed, (laughs) the Holy Spirit kind of uh, let me in on some things that I needed to work on in my life as I studied this. And he'll probably do the same thing to you if you're discerning and you read this. The Holy Spirit will speak to you if, if you're tender. Because the disciples here had some, had some growth that needed to happen. This blind man needed to get saved. He didn't need to just have his eyes open physically. He needed to get saved. And these Pharisees needed to realize who Jesus is and what that means. And I wish that it was a different outcome. I do. But these are the same people who are going to stand up later and say, We don't care about Jesus. We want Barabbas. Deliver unto us Barabbas, and they're going to open their mouth, and they're going to say, crucify him, crucify him. What would bring these people? These, these were the ones that were supposed to be protectors of the very word, protectors of the law, protectors of the oracles of God. What would lead them to the place where they couldn't even recognize God manifest in the flesh? It's sad. But they will not enter into life. Not because of Jesus, not because of anything that he is, you know, holding them back from, from their own unbelief, from their own hardness of heart. And friend, if we're not careful, we can wind up just as calloused. Oh, this passage has so much for each one of us, so much. Think about Jesus coming. Now, let's, let's get up to speed here. You really need to take this dialogue back to chapter 7 and 8. And there's something that's happening in Jerusalem at this time. It's called the Feast of, of Tabernacles and, and booths and, so, and trumpets. And, and this is the time of year when all of this is occurring. Jesus comes down to Jerusalem area and he's in Judea and he's performing these miracles there. I think there's, a, there's four that we've looked at that are in that area. And many of his other miracles were up in Galilee. And we've talked about him you know, walking on the water and, and feeding the multitude and, and turning the water into wine in Cana and and then healing the, Capernaum, the, the nobleman's son at Capernaum. All of that happened up in the north country. Now he's down in the temple area. He has stood up. And I can't describe it the way that some have, but if you're in Jerusalem during feast days, man, that's a special time over there. When we went, we arrived at the end of the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles, of the Week of Booths. And uh, it's neat because everybody over there, uh, on the balconies, anywhere that they can, they just they throw up a tent. And when I mean tent, I mean whatever you can make out of a tent is what they'll use. Blankets, sheets, you know, whatever they do. And so all across the balconies and everything, they, they're recognizing the Feast of Booths. And they're remembering, they're wandering in the wilderness when they had to all, you know, tabernacle and live in tents and move around and all this stuff. So uh, even in your backyard, you know, you set the tent up and you stay out there for the week. That might be good for some of us sometimes. Maybe not in January here in Colorado, but or February, right, at that uh, winter endurance. That was pretty, pretty deep snow. But this is, this is a special time. So as you approach the Temple Mount, you need to understand, there's visual cues everywhere. I mean, there's, there's torch light. There's, uh, there's big water vessels. 
Because all of these themes tie in. You know, over there, if you don't have water, you die. It's a desert area. And we understand that here in Colorado. What happens when we don't get enough rain and our reservoirs are down? Uh, we need water. We were just talking before the service, right? Not a lot of water in this past month down south. And things are dry. We need water for life. They need it over there too. If you don't have water, you don't have life. And then the light. So Jesus has given the invitation back in chapter 7. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And then in chapter number 8, he has had this, this back and forth between the Pharisees and really has condemned them already for their unbelief. And he says, I'm, basically I'm going to paraphrase, he says, I'm going somewhere and you're not going to be able to come because you're going to die in your sins. Because you have not believed that Jesus is the Son of God. So all of these things John's telling us to help us understand that Jesus was sent by the Father... To be the Messiah. And boy, I wish more people could just see that. That he is who the Bible says he is. In such a powerful way. So in chapter 8, and leading up to chapter 9, he stands up and he gives another teaching. And this teaching centers around this aspect. Jesus being the light of the world. Now, John chapter 9 is nestled, go figure, right in between chapter 8 and 10. (laughs) What's there, though? I'm the light of the world, chapter 8. Chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Nestled right in between those two, those two uh, statements by Jesus is this story about this blind man. It's beautiful because this blind man, not one time does he ask Jesus to do anything for him. Let's look at verse number 1. Notice the words here. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. When we were moving out to Colorado, we made the drive out here and things were going well. You know, we left Atlanta and everything. Well, it was good to leave Atlanta. Some of you will understand that, especially getting away from 285. And we drove through, you know, the mountains of Tennessee and it was beautiful and and then Kentucky and the rolling hills there and the green and, and, and all the mountains. It was a beautiful drive. And then we were thinking, okay, we've made good ground. You know, we've already covered a couple of states. And, and we crossed over the Mississippi and we hit Kansas. And, uh, yeah, that was a long, that was a long, you know, we were going this way across Kansas. That's the long way, by the way. And and it just seemed like forever. And I thought, we're never going to get out of this state. This state's like the size of the country. What am I? I've never been. I've never been past the Mississippi driving. Okay, I'm I'm a Georgia boy. This was new to me. And I'm thinking, okay, we'll get through Kansas. We'll be in Colorado. I got in Colorado. I felt like I was still in Kansas. I'm like, I thought there were Rocky Mountains out here. I don't see any Rocky Mountains. Well, when we were coming through Kansas, I kept seeing sign after sign after sign. Huge prairie dog. Anybody seen those signs? Come through. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not crazy. There's those signs out there that says this huge, like, I don't know, huge prairie dog. And so you see a sign and you drive for a while, then you see another sign. Huge prairie dog. Then you drive for a while and you see huge prairie dog. And then, you know, they'll throw one in about Dorothy's house somewhere is out there too. Uh, not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> the wrong generation, sorry. <laughs> Maybe it'll come around. But, you know, I, has anybody ever seen the giant prairie dog? Anybody? You, you've gone? Okay, a couple have gone. You're going to have to tell me where that thing is. 
I mean, I drove by sign after sign after sign, and I'm looking, okay, there's a big prairie dog somewhere. I'm going to find it. I'm going to see this thing. No. <laughs> Maybe it was dark. I don't know. Maybe I was tired driving through Kansas. But sign after sign. Okay, now, now go with me on this. Throughout the Gospel of John, it's like we've been seeing these billboards. And, and advertisers used to do this quite a bit. You know, you'd, they'd put like a poem in, in a bunch of signs and you'd drive maybe, you know, 15 miles or so and see another one. And, and then by the time you get to the end, they're advertising their product to you. you you've seen those maybe if, you're, if you remember those days. So here, John, through his gospel, we come to chapter 2 and he says, Billboard, are you with me? Jesus Christ turned water into wine there. And I believe that, so I'm fermented grape juice, by the way. I won't get into a discourse on that. But then we come to chapter 4, and we see another billboard. He heals the nobleman's son. We come to chapter 5, another billboard, and he heals the layman. We come to chapter 6, another billboard, another sign. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He is the one that is sent from above. And in chapter 5, he makes a layman walk. In chapter 6, he feeds the multitude and walks on water. And then Peter makes that confession in chapter 6. We believe that thou art the Christ. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Chapter 7, he stands up and invites everyone to come to him to drink if they're thirsty. And he means living water, like the eternal water. He told that woman at Samaria at the well there. He told her about that living water. That's what he's inviting people to in chapter 7. Chapter 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. Then chapter 9, another billboard. He passes by this man without any provocation from this man apart from just Jesus having compassion on him and maybe his disciples asking the question they did. We've got to cover that one in a minute if I have time. They ask this question. I think we need to grow some as followers of the Lord. Jesus heals this man. Then we go through chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd. Chapter 11. Guess what? Another billboard. You see what I'm saying? So keep your eyes on this, because the whole point of what John is trying to say is he's writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that believing on Him, you might have life through His name. That's why these billboards are there. That's why these sign miracles are recorded by the Holy Spirit. Notice with me first how Jesus visits us in our misery. Verses 1 through 7, we'll cover this. And this is the first dialogue. Now, I gave you a little bit into my exegesis here. I don't want to get overbearing with it. But notice, I I break this down. And if you want to make the word dialogue plural, you can do that. Okay, if you want to say, well, Jesus is talking to more than one person in these accounts. That's fine. But there's really three major sets of dialogues that occur. You've got the dialogues between Jesus and his disciples and this blind man where he tells him to go. And that's verses 1 through 7. Then you've got the discourses, the dialogues, if you will, between this healed man now, because he's been healed, he's not blind anymore, and his neighbors, the Pharisees. The Pharisees have a dialogue with his parents, and then come back to him, and there's four of them located there. And then after that, we have one more dialogue between two entities, Jesus and this healed man, and then Jesus and the Pharisees as the whole chapter closes. There's a broad overview, the broad brush. So here in verses 1 through 7, I'm looking with you at the first dialogue. And the the entities that are involved in this dialogue are Jesus and his disciples and Jesus and this blind man. Now, as I look at this blind man, 
I read through the chapter, and, and maybe you know his name. I don't know his name. I can't find his name in Scripture. So if you find his name, let me know what it is. Because I don't see it anywhere. I think that's on purpose. Because if you look back at chapter 8, remember this woman was taken in adultery. What's her name? You don't know it either. Okay, it's not given. Not, not from what I can find. Now, that's chapter 8, right? And then chapter 9 nestled in between that. Go to chapter 10. Now, we do know this woman's name, but interesting, they're both women. Jesus tells that woman, taken in adultery, go and sin no more. Basically, what he told the man that he, he the lame man that he made walk in chapter 5, lest the worst thing come unto thee. Some have tied this all the way back to that. I don't know if I'm prepared to go that far or not with his disciples asking this question. But here you have this unnamed woman in chapter 8 that Jesus does a, a marvelous thing for her, sets her free from her sinful life, and tells her, go and sin no more. And then in chapter 10, we go through chapter 10, the Good Shepherd. Chapter 11, we come to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We talked about them last week. Remember them? The family that lived in Bethany that Jesus loved, each one of them individually. You go to verse 25, I think it's verse 25, and you find Martha being asked almost, almost verbatim, not, not exactly, but almost the same question that Jesus is going to ask this healed man by the time you come to the end of chapter 9. Here's the question. Martha, believest thou this? He comes to this man and he asks him, Do you believe? Do you believe? Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. John chapter 9, verse 35. And when he had found him, I love how that's worded, he said unto him, what did he ask? Dost thou believe on the Son of God? So, here's an unnamed blind man. I, I think John's on to something here. Are you with me? He's got the unnamed woman taken in adultery in chapter 8. He's got the unnamed blind man here in chapter 9. And then he's got Martha being asked the same thing in chapter 11, that this blind man is being asked, well, the healed man, by the time you come to verse 35. Just connecting some bigger dots for you there. Maybe you already saw that and you've underlined them and highlighted them and that's old hat to you. Notice that Jesus sees the blind man and then the disciples inquire, Master who sinned. Verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind, note this, from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, that's literally rabbi, uh, you're reading that translated rabbi, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I'm preaching to the choir here this morning, aren't I? You see a problem with that statement? I hope you do. Oh, how many times have I put my foot in my mouth? Shoe leather tastes real good. And, and before I throw you know, anything too hard at these guys, let me remember all the missteps I've made. Oh, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. See, they've already sized this man up. These would be like Job's miserable comforters, wouldn't they? Hey, Job, if you'd just get right with God, all this would go away. Hey, Jesus, uh, who, you know, who's not right with God because of this man's blindness? They automatically attribute it to sin. Now, this has been a passage that's caused some to stumble because they come to it and they read it and they say, based off Jesus' response, he says that it's for the glory of God, for the, that the works of God might be done... So then they start thinking through this, and logically so. I mean, you're right to try to think this through. So you're, 
I think this is faulty. This is not the way. I just want to be clear about that. This is not the way you should think about this, but many people do. They look at this and they say, okay, God created this man, and he was born blind. He was blind from his birth. God gave him this blindness so that he could manifest his works. Friend, if that's your line of thinking, what kind of God are you serving? That's not my God. That's a God that we make in our own image. Okay, pastor, then what's the answer? Okay, you ready for this one? I'm glad you're sitting down. I don't have it all figured out either. I'm sorry. If, if I could answer that question, then... Whew, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of it. But I do know that if you will believe that God can take even the bad things in life, even these things that we, that we, that we bear... As a sinful creation. Now, notice I said a sinful creation. Because ultimately, all of our sin goes back to Adam, right? But is that... I mean, is it this man's fault? Is it his parents' fault? Is it... I mean, is it because of sin? Or, or could God take, take our limitations and use them for His glory? I've seen Him do it time and time again. So, friend, I don't think that God made this man blind so that He could demonstrate how powerful He was. That's... That's, that's silliness. That's like saying, can God create a rock so big that he can't pick it up? That's the kind of logic that it follows. That's not our God. Again, I can't explain all the ins and outs, but I do know what the text says. And the revealed scripture tells us that Jesus is going to use this man's uh, disability as an opportunity to demonstrate that he is from God and that we can believe on him. So I, th- I think we're on the same page so far. But I'll tell you, this, just like these disciples, this bothers me, by the way. We have a tendency to not see sometimes. Many of you know my wife does respite care, and she helps those with special needs. And we love, we love all the people that God allows us to be able to work with and help. And, and I'll tell you, they are, they are just special. And they have a, God's gifted many of them in ways that, man, it just excels beyond me. But how many times, how many times does, does someone walk by somebody that has a disability like this? And, uh, well, let's look at what the disciples did. They're walking by, and not only now are they treating this man like he's blind, they're treating him like he's deaf, too. I mean, think about it. The way the text lays out, it's like they're just walking right by. I think... I don't, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I think this man's within earshot of them. And his hearing, I guarantee you, is acutely sensitive to overhearing this conversation. Hey, Jesus, uh, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Oh, he must be deaf too. You see what I'm saying? This kind of stuff bothers me. It shouldn't happen. Now, just take that as a side application for what it's worth. Put that in your doggy bag and chew on it for a while. We can, we can rise above that, can't we? Surely we can. Because if God overlooks our weaknesses, if He overlooks our infirmities, who, you know, whatever you want to define as normal is normal, <laughs> we all have areas where God probably could say, uh, but He doesn't. The ground is level at the cross, and all can come to Jesus, no matter what. So, again, I don't want to come down too hard on them because have I been guilty of the same thing in the past? We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. 
the priest and the Levite with the Good Samaritan story. I'm just going to go this way instead. I don't want to have to deal with this situation. <laughs> don't over, overdo things, okay? This man is, is not deaf. He can hear them. He just can't see with his eyes. People appreciate being genuinely cared for, right? I mean genuinely cared for. But they resent being treated like a, another case or another problem or a, a curiosity. I'm glad we've grown past some of those days. When dealing with people who suffer, they're suffering. They might be disabled somehow. Can I just encourage you, try to empathize with them. I know you can't, but try as best as you can. Walk a mile in their shoes. Consider how they feel. Consider what they have to bear each day. I think if the disciples would have paused long enough to do that and thought, man, that could have been me sitting there. I think their question might have been different. I don't know, but it's inspired by Scripture and it's given for our growth. We should always strive to treat others in a way that we would want to be treated were our situations reversed, right? So let's, let's do that. Jesus explains that this man's blindness is, is going to be manifesting the very works of God. Let's look at verse 3. Jesus answered. I'm so glad that he, he answered this. He didn't leave them hanging on. Okay, somebody sinned in this. He says, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. You guys are off base. You're not seeing what's going on here. And there's a colon in the verse, so when you see a colon, you want to look for explanation. There's an explanation coming. He says, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now just keep reading. There's a period there, but keep reading, and you'll get the sense of it. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Remember, punching holes in the darkness. Punching holes in the darkness. No man can work when the night comes. As long as I am in the world, he says it again, what he said in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. One preacher applied this this way, and this resonated with me. He said, God has his own wise reasons for permitting sickness and disease and suffering and trouble. And this, this preacher, when he had to go to the hospital for surgery, he got, he got letters from all kinds of people. One of those letters, uh, well, he said several, were telling him, you know, why God let this happen to him. Don't you love those? <laughs> they mean well, I, I get it, but sometimes we can make things worse. The trouble that this, that this preacher had, though, was he wasn't sure that any one of them knew exactly why he was having to go through what he was going through. God doesn't always reveal why he permits things. But this preacher went on to say, I believe this. And I believe it with him, by the way. He said, God never does, nor suffers to be done. But what we would ourselves, listen now, could we but see through all events of things as well as He. God has His way. He doesn't propose to tell us all of His reasons. He doesn't ask us, He does ask us to walk with Him by faith through the dark times. Here's a man who's blind. And we don't know exactly all of it, but we do know that this particular instance, Jesus is going to manifest the works of God. God can use our suffering. Notice how Jesus heals this blind man. Okay, the blind man, and, and then this blind man simply 
obeys what Jesus says. That's a theme we've seen in the other miracles, isn't it? Trust and obey, for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So notice how Jesus heals the blind man who simply obeys his word. Verse 6, When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is, by interpretation, sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Well, I have to admit to you this morning, I don't think I'm going to make it as far as I wanted to go. We have 41 verses. We've only covered verse up through verse 7. We're going to have lunch later. If you want to stay with me that long, I'm not going to do that to you. Okay, we'll invite you to stay. We're going to have a potluck lunch here for the afternoon service. But I'm going to, I'm going to end right here with verse 7 and challenge you. Go and look through the rest of this passage and see the discourse that happens where these Pharisees are condemned in their unbelief and this blind man receives faith in Jesus Christ. He believes on Jesus and he finds salvation. That's the ultimate uh, end run to the end of the story. right? Now let's think about what Jesus does here and, and we'll wrap up our time here this morning. Jesus, notice the man didn't ask him. Lord, heal me. You know, blind Bartimaeus. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus healed that man. He was blind, blind Bartimaeus. That man asked and he got. You have not because you ask not. When you ask, you ask amiss. James tells us many times why our prayers aren't answered. Number one, we're not asking. Number two, when we ask, we ask for the wrong reasons. Because it's what we want. Who was it? I can't remember who said this, but, but they said prayer. Oh, it might have been, it might have been Dr. Sexton. Uh, he said prayer is not getting God to come around to our way of thinking but vice versa, something along those lines, you know. It's, it's God getting us to come around to His way of thinking. So notice this man does not ask Jesus for anything, but Jesus of His own volition, of His own accord, comes, and this man, he's blatantly honest in his recounting. If you read later, he doesn't say anything about Jesus taking spittle and making clay. All he knows is that he was anointed with the clay. He didn't know about the spitting part. And so he's brutally honest with these Pharisees when they come and try to pigeonhole him. And he just tells them, frankly, the way it was and gives them from his perspective. So Jesus, he, he makes the spittle out of clay. Now, I don't want to ruin your lunch or anything of that nature. This, was, this is gross to us today. But in this culture, it's not unheard of. Okay, it's, it's really not. I mean, think about it. When you touch a flame or, or you burn your finger, what's the, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to, you know, we're going to eat later, but... What, why do you do that? <laughs> okay, I, I'll refrain from going back to my elementary school days because some of that's, yeah, that's not good. In this day and time, Jesus taking this spittle. Notice he uses means that they're going to be comfortable accepting because there's, they're looking at it in some ways as medicinal. So he takes this. But it wasn't the clay that brought this man's sight. Notice he still had to go wash in the pool. Now, I've got to tell you about Jerusalem again and the pool of Siloam. And this is why I know we're going to end here because this is about as far as I'm going to have time to go with you. Jesus tells this man, where are they? They're in the temple. I remember, I mean, we got in a bus and we drove around and then parked. Or, well, the bus driver let us out. We were at the temple mount. And we drove over, and the bus driver led us out, and then we walked up this alleyway in this corridor to get to the Pool of Siloam from Jerusalem. 
You can walk there. But picture this. Jesus comes, He makes this clay, and then He anoints... That's an interesting word study too, by the way. He anoints this man's eyes with clay, and then He tells him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Back in the Old Testament, there was somebody that was told to go dip in the Jordan seven times and be healed. Do you remember that story? Okay, why is this man later, when he's asked who this, who this Jesus is, he's going to say, He's a prophet? They're understanding that. This man understands. Jesus... There's more to this than him just putting this mud on me and me going to the Pool of Siloam. Now, the Pool of Siloam is an amazing, amazing piece of history and archaeology there in Israel. Uh, it goes back to the days of, of the Canaanites even. And this is located at the south part of Jerusalem. And you have the Kidron Valley that runs in between uh, Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. The Gihon Spring would gush water from the south part of the city. Now think about it. If you're making a capital city, don't you need water? So it makes sense why this would be a, a, a prominent city in the Canaanite days. And then David is going to come and take this city from the Jebusites and make it his capital where we get Jerusalem from. But th- it goes all the way back to like Melchizedek, Genesis 14. He's the king of Salem, right? So this is, this is a prominent place. Now, you see it in Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls. You also see it in Hezekiah's day. And they did an amazing feat. An amazing feat. And I got to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. Anybody, uh, some of you have probably walked through Hezekiah's tunnel uh, if you've been over there. What an amazing feat of engineering for that day and time. Why? Because Hezekiah was afraid of the siege that would come. So this water has been constantly coming and constantly gushing. The Pool of Siloam is at the south part of Jerusalem. This blind man is told by Jesus, all right, you've got this mud on your face, <laughs> covering your eyes, you can't see anything. You've got to go all the way down to the Pool of Siloam and wash. I mean, I'm sure he probably gets around fine because he can't see anyway. But he's, you picture him stumbling maybe, asking people, where's the Pool of Siloam? I'm trying to find the Pool of Siloam. How hard would it be for you, friend, if you couldn't see anything, to navigate Denver? Now, I know we got cars and things, they didn't have that, but there's still dangers, okay, you with me? This man has to go all the way from the Temple Mount down to the Pool of Siloam. He goes into the Pool of Siloam. Get this. Oh, you've got to see this. One thing I know. I went into that pool. I couldn't see a thing. And he comes out of that water. And his eyes are opened. And he comes back. And the Bible says he comes back seeing I can't, I can't put that into words. I just can't even, I can't even begin to, to tell you how I feel about thinking about this man's experience as he comes out of that water, never having seen anything in God's beautiful creation before, and then taking it all in. Can you imagine him walking back? <laughs> and then as soon as he gets back, wham! Who did this to you? <laughs> Great. Here we go, right? Jesus... Open this man's eyes physically. But there's a greater need. He had to open his eyes spiritually. There's a statement that's made, and I'll leave you with this. Think this through. I'll read it twice because it's profound. The waters of Siloam disappear in the living water of Christ. The waters of Siloam. Siloam, you know, they had to put watchtowers up there. You remember Jesus telling a story about a tower that fell and killed a bunch of people? Tower of Siloam. Because they had to guard this Gihon Spring. They had to set a watch over this. 
the waters of Siloam, as wonderful as this story is, they disappear in light of the waters of eternal life from Jesus Christ our Lord.